Nuns vs. Nurses, Episode 2 Jacob now lays unconscious at the edge of a forest, his sudden awareness of his own existence having been interrupted by an encounter with three nurses and then an accidental fall over the side of a cliff. With only the forest treetops to break his fall, his bruised and battered body now lays on cold earth. The sounds of the forest and the rushing of the distant river are the only soundtrack to accompany his stillness. Then the forest breaks as a small group of men who had seen his fall slowly approach his body. More men from the direction of the river approach as well. They are an outlying hunting party from a small settlement of people who exist nearby in the forest. Their existence is somewhat primitive, but has some indications that it was once much more advanced. Their gear and attire indicate they have made some basic initial technological steps to advance from their primitive lifestyle. As is the way of men, only a few of them are more eager to approach closer, as most of the group lingers behind them. The first to speak is Brayson Love. His attire is highlighted by a straw hat that he pushes back and a red vest that loosely flaps in the wind. And as he draws on a small pipe, he says, Who do you suppose this fallen angel is, Major? The man who answers is physical in stature. The brown skin of his bare chest glows in the evening moon, and he has a large dark-haired mohawk that crests his head. He says, We don't need to know who he is. We know he is not from here, and so we know just what to do with him. The third man who approached Jacob with them is also physically built, somewhat younger than the other two. His head is shaved clean except for a large green ponytail flowing from behind. And he says, Before we bring him in, maybe we should wait till we can hear his story, see where he comes. But before he can finish, the entire party is suddenly put on guard. A rustle in the bushes has arrested their attention, and whatever is moving is large and fast. Perhaps the very prey they were hunting, or perhaps a predator that will quickly turn the tables on them. As the bushes suddenly part, through the darkness, they can only see a dim glow of moonlight on the edges of a large, fast-moving cat-like creature. The moonlight gently lights the entire scene and reflects off the men, the new encroacher, the forest, the cliff, and the stone structure Jacob was in before he fell from it. On the far side of the cliff, not more than a few miles away, the moon also hangs over another camp of people who are also having a very active night. A large horse-drawn wagon has been filled with crates of supplies from a nearby surplus tent. The tarp that covers the crates also glows in the moonlight. And as the wind whips the entrance to the surplus tent open, a large group of ladies dressed in various forms of nuns attire are exhausted from having moved the crates from the tent to the wagon. Despite the variations of their attire, they each wear what seems to be identical rosaries. Only instead of a crucifix, the totem at the end of each of them is a beautifully crafted, old-fashioned, gold-colored key. As two of the nuns go outside to prepare the wagon for transport, Sister Arcadia steps forward and addresses the other nuns. Her commanding, athletic presence instantly draws everyone's attention as the torchlight in the tent reflects off her dark skin. We can rest for a few moments, Sister, she says. The cart will get everything back to the camp by morning. Hiding our supplies remotely is not easy, but we have had too many thefts and unexplained surplus losses to risk keeping everything back at our base camp. Sister Dames, who is lighter in complexion and slightly smaller, but still with a very physical presence, says, I'd feel better if I traveled with the wagon too. It will be more secure with three of us, and I can get back to the children sooner. Arcadia replies, yes, quickly, I hear they're pulling away outside. 
And so Sister Dames picks up one more box of medical supplies and quickly runs out into the darkness to catch the wagon. But it has already started to pull away. The two nuns on board neither see Sister Dames behind them nor hear her cry out over the sounds of the wagon and the horse. After a futile attempt to catch them, Sister Dames finally resigns and heads back to the tent. But a shadow grows quickly behind her, and Sister Dames turns too slow to protect herself from a large fist that smashes across the back of her head. And as her senses fade, and she slips into a dream-laden unconsciousness, she can just make out the outline of her attacker in the dark. She barely sees the large figure looming over her, but in her last thought before slipping into darkness, she is sure her attacker is wearing the uniform of a nurse. Elsewhere, an inquisition of sorts is taking place. A large, roundish figure, weighed down by the amount of mass he carries, is appearing before a panel of mysteriously cloaked figures covered in deep scarlet-colored robes that conceal them almost completely. The large man wears a tall, ornate headdress and carries a staff that is capped at the tip with a sculpted pine cone. He sweats and breathes heavily under the stress of the situation and the gravity of his own physicality. A golden light shines down on him, the only other color present in the room as everything is based in the deepest shade of red lighting, to the extent that even the mostly purple attire of the large man appears to be red from the reflection. One of the panel of red-robed figures looks down at the man from high behind his podium and says, So the latest savior has arrived, and you failed to make first contact. You assured us you were capable of handling things. Perhaps we put our faith in the wrong party, and your time in this position will be short one indeed. The purple-clothed man looks desperately up at the panel and says with the somewhat lacking conviction, I'm feeling refreshed and energized and ready to do your bidding. Tan rested and ready, as they say. My agents have infiltrated all the right factions and tribes. They will find him. Another member of the Red Robe panel quickly and harshly responds, Your casual approach is not encouraging. If he is the one that can... If he is the one that can prevent us from reaching our goals and you have failed in your only chance to get what we need, you will be the one to pay the highest price, I assure you. We will survive if you fail, Ben Ratso. You, however, will not. Time is running out. Report back to us when you succeed. And as the panel backs away and leaves, the large purple-clothed man stands silently in the glowing light, relieved he has survived another day. He knows exactly why the panel of red robes is so threatened by the arrival of someone they cannot account for, but he does not know yet that when he finally does find Jacob, it will change both of their lives forever in ways he cannot begin to guess at now. Meanwhile, Sister Dames lies unconscious outside the tent, and Jacob still lies unconscious in the forest at the feet of the tribal party that found him, and they both begin to dream. In her dream, Sister Dames is in a pleasant bucolic setting, brightly lit with signs of animal and plant life all around her. As she finishes bathing in a beautiful flowing waterfall, she steps from the water and dresses again in her nun's habit, and she thinks to herself, I have this growing feeling inside of me, that change is coming, that there is so much more to this world than we know, and may soon find that there is so much more to this world than we know, and we may soon find out what it is. I know I can make a difference. With the sacrifices that have already been made, I have to do better. But suddenly her thoughts are interrupted as she sees a young man approach her and hears him say to her, Can you help me? Am I dreaming? In the meantime, in Jacob's dream, he is walking through green forests and hilly areas. He hears the rushing of water and follows the sound. 
until he comes across a beautiful young lady with long dark hair next to a waterfall. She is finishing getting dressed and drying off from the water, and as he sees her in his dream, he reaches out and says to her, Can you help me? Am I dreaming? Somehow a dream is being shared by two people about to have a conversation that will forever change their lives, the lives of everyone around them and their understanding of the nature of the entire world. Hi, this is Kerry Cohen. I'm the author of Nuns vs. Nurses and also the uh, host of the podcast, of course, if you don't recognize my voice. So if you don't know, Nuns vs. Nurses was actually a three-part graphic novel series that I wrote and illustrated uh, just, just a couple years ago. And so, you know, I'm really having a, a fun time kind of adapting it to the podcast format and putting it together for you. I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you can, uh, I hope you can tune back in as I uh, create further episodes and uh, reveal the rest of the story to you. Of course, you can always, uh, you know, peek ahead and get the graphic novel and see how it all ends if you want to. But I hope you're enjoying the podcast, and I'm looking forward to doing the next episode for you, and I hope to see you back here then. Thanks so much.